matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. For about the last 200 years, we've had various uh, teachers speak and stand up and say, you know, I just don't see how I can go another 10 years. About every 10 years, we've had some of those guys come up, you know. And I don't know if, if uh, some of you were a part of or that you ever heard of uh, some of the various speakers that, that came up and said, for example, um, that the Messiah would be coming back in 1988. In fact, there was a, there was a book that was very popular uh, in evangelical circles, uh, 88 Reasons Why Christ Returns in 1988. And uh, I'm one of those guys that went to a Christian bookstore in 1989 and found that book on sale for half price. And and I asked the clerk, I said, hey, uh, you know, it's 1989, you know, why, why, why are you still selling the book? And he said, hey, it's half price. And uh, I have discovered there are really three three types of prophets that are running around in the world that are dealing with the end times. There are true prophets. Uh, that are anointed of God, there are false prophets, and there are non-prophets. Uh, those are guys that form non-profit organizations and write prophecy books but don't prophesy anything, and they do it all for profit, if you know what I'm talking about. Those are referred to as the non-prophets. Having uh, initiated our subject with, with uh, that minor introduction, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Isaiah and chapter 46, beginning at verse 8. And there the scripture reads, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. This is a passage of scripture that when the sages of Israel considered what the prophet had said, they didn't have a, a great big problem with the idea that God was sovereign or that he had the knowledge of all things to happen, or that he had planned it, and that he would surely do it. They didn't have any issue with that whatsoever. But what really got their attention was when God said, I, the Lord God, am not like anybody you've ever known, because I can tell you the end while telling you the beginning. And it would take a God to do that. And that's the reason they went back to Genesis chapter 1, and we made a very interesting discovery. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this, how God defines for us how he created what we understand to be the heavens and the earth. And on day one, God created light and darkness, and he separated the light from the darkness. On day two, he created the waters and the expanse of the upper and the lower, and in fact, created the heavens. On day three, he created plants yielding seed. On day four, he created lights in the heavens as for signs and seasons. 
On day five, he brought forth living creatures. On day six, he brought forth man. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his labors and established or blessed the Sabbath. And they made a rather interesting discovery. Now, it took a few years for this to happen before they began to realize it. But the psalmist had also brought this out, that it seems like with the Lord, for every day, there's a thousand years. And for every thousand years, there's a day. And they made the discovery that in the Bible history, for every thousand years that we count along, it matches God in the creation. For example, in the first 1,000 years of biblical history, it's really about the story of Adam. Adam lived to be 930 years old. Adam is the one who brought sin into the world, darkness. And he was separated from God's presence, who is the light. And that was what the scripture said would happen in day one. Light and darkness, and the light would be separated from the darkness. And so they found that it's exactly what God had said. God had said to Adam, if you sin, you will surely die in that day. Adam lived to be 930 years. He died in that first 1,000-year day. So we find a correlation of a day, 2,000 years. In the second 1,000-year period, we have the story of Noah and the flood. And in the second day of creation, God separated the waters from the waters. So we have the theme of waters, and we have the flood. In the third day, he brought forth plants yielding seed. In the third millennia, the third thousand-year period, we have Abraham, whose in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. And in fact, it goes all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down into Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, Israel entering into the land, and Israel means the planting of the Lord. So that corresponds. On day four, he brought forth plant or uh, lights in the expanse of heaven to show forth signs and seasons. And in the fourth millennia, we have the time of the kings and of the prophets, of which the prophets say that they are lights in the expanse of heaven showing forth the signs and seasons of God. So that seems to trap. In the fifth, he brought forth living creatures. That's when the Messiah came to make us new creatures. In the sixth, he brought forth man and woman, told them to fill the earth and subdue it. And in the last thousand years, that's exactly what mankind has done. We have increased tremendously, filled the earth, and subdued it. We've even left the earth, gone to the moon, if you believe that story, and come back. You know, it's the latest rage down in America, by the way. And uh, we've gone to the deepest sea. We've gone to the highest mountains. We have truly subdued the earth and filled the earth in this thousand years. The seventh day is the millennial kingdom, the Sabbath of millennia. And the prophecy says that when the Messiah returns, that he will rule and reign for a thousand years and he will be here for the last day. Now, Peter makes this same point to us. In fact, in Second Peter, in chapter 3, he makes reference to that in the last days there will be mockers amongst us. 
who will be mocking the idea of the coming of the Lord. And he makes reference to, and he says, the mistake that they have made is that they have flat forgotten that God has already judged this world once before by water. And that those people back there, they didn't understand either. And that the next coming of the Lord comes with it a great day of the Lord, a great judgment that will come upon the earth, only this time by a fire, a consuming fire. And so he reminds us, he says, knowing this one fact, brethren, do not forget that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What he's really telling us is, is that you and I should be able to get a sense of when the sixth day is coming to a conclusion, and the seventh day is getting ready to happen. Now, let's just do the most simplest form of uh, chronology of the time of the earth that we possibly can. Here we are in the year of our Lord, 2002. And according to most chronologists, we believe that the, the creation was back there close to about 4,000 B.C., and we had about 4,000 years, and then the Messiah came. And since the Messiah has come, why, we've been approximately 2,003 years. So what year, biblical year, would we be in? Oh, about 6,002, according to that. Hey, brethren, we're already past due. We're already, where, where, where's that last day? If you take the Hebrew calendar... We are in the year 5762, 5762 since the creation. However, Hebrew chronologists also agree we miscalculated the Persian Empire and the time of it to an error of about 240 years. So if I take 240 and I add it to 5762, I again come up with about 6002. That's the reason why... It's a real intriguing subject, because the fact is that we as a generation are uniquely qualified to say, hey, according to Peter's exhortation, we should be pretty close. Now, for those who do much more detailed Bible chronology studies, of which we have one brother here who has done some of this, you know, all of us who have done some of those studies, we know that there's a whole series of assumptions and conditions as you go back and try to trace through. Basically, calculating up to Abraham is not too difficult. It's that period of time from Abraham to, to about the time the Messiah came. That's where it gets a little wishy-washy trying to count up the times of the kings and all that. But the Bible pretty much, you know, starts counting it up and trying to match it against world history and trying to track. But so what it comes down to is it's plus or minus you know, a few years. But I can tell you this, it ain't plus or minus, you know, a whole bunch of years. I can tell you on the basis of this prophecy alone, we're close. We're real close. And we've already disproven some of the other chronologies we already use as common time for counting times. We're past due already. So if you go back and you do some really detailed chronologies, you can find we're pretty close on this whole issue. So from that standpoint of that prophecy... That's the reason why we had so much attention being paid to the millennium. 
The year 2000, that was the ancient chronology that has been accepted by the world for the most time. We should have been expecting something to happen on the basis of that prophecy. Let me take you to another prophecy, which I think is far more telling, that indicates as to where we're at with regard to the end times. If you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, speaks to the end when even when Michael the archangel will be doing things, and this tracks with Revelation 12. So we're talking about events being talked about in the book of Revelation with what Daniel talks about. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. You remember me telling you about how God is going to redeem the final redemption and restoration of all of Israel? That's what that prophecy is about. All those that belong to the Lord, that is in his book of life, will all be gathered up and will be resurrected and will enter into the kingdom. Verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to the disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's a good verse that describes the two resurrections. They're separated by a thousand years. Some to everlasting life and then later some to everlasting contempt. That tracks Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. Verse 3, and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Sounds good. Sounds wonderful. Verse 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, Daniel did not like this. Daniel was pretty concerned about these prophecies. And in fact, he will inquire again of the Lord. Well, Lord, what, what's the outcome of this? I mean, what, what, what's going to happen? And in fact, in verse 8, he says, As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Brethren, I have something to tell you. Our problem, understanding end times, has nothing to do with the knowledge of the prophecy. Everybody has the prophecies. The problem is understanding the prophecy. I guarantee you the world right now has all the end time prophecies they need in the Bible. The problem is they don't understand them. And you go up to a Bible scholar who is interested in understanding Bible prophecy, he cannot stand it like Daniel to not understand this. And that's the reason why we have so many diverse theories and explanations as to what in the world is supposed to be happening. And that's the reason why we, over the last 200 years, we've had a variety of brethren coming up and say, this is it, it's not going to, it's going to happen within the next 10 years and so forth, because there's this sense of it's close and, and we're trying to nail it down and you just can't, you know, a Bible scholar, a, a teacher of the Bible just cannot stand, like Daniel couldn't, to not understand this. And sometimes rather than relying on the Spirit of God to reveal to them, why they speculate. They kind of try to figure it out, so to speak. But you know what? The scripture says there that some people will understand. Who is it it says will understand? Men of insight will understand. 
Wow. That's interesting. In other words, God really has purposed some men at the end to understand that. Men of insight will understand. I'll talk about that in just a little bit further, but let's talk about the signs that were given to Daniel at that time that said when the end would be. Many will go to and fro. Knowledge will increase. There are three signs there. The first sign is many. Many. That's the first sign. The world at the time at the end will have many people. Are you aware of the fact that in October of 1999, something incredible happened to the history of the world? The number of people alive today in the world, walking around alive today, is greater than the number of people who've ever lived in the history of the world ever. More than 50% of all human beings in the earth are alive today on the earth. It's called the knowledge, or excuse me, the population explosion. And right now, that number is growing. Isn't it interesting that God has picked a time to reveal himself when he would have the greatest possible audience of all the people that have ever lived in the history of the world present to see his coming? And that's what the prophecy said would happen. There would be more people in the world when he would come than has ever been in the history of the world. You and I live in a very interesting world, one which has never been known before, just by the sheer number of us that are here. And we're well over six billion people, well over six billion. In previous history, counting them all up, there wasn't six billion ever in the history of the world. So it seems like the Lord's kind of set this up. This generation is very unique compared to any other generation in the history. The second prophecy was that many of us would travel to and fro. I remember when I was a young boy, about the age of 15, I used to mow the grass for a lot of people in Abilene, Kansas. I had a lawnmower, and I used to go around and mow the grass for $1 a yard. And I made pretty good money for a kid, you know, my age. And I will never forget Mrs. James, fine lady, that I would mow her Bermuda grass every two weeks in the summer there in Kansas. And I will never forget her explaining to me how she was going to get on an airplane and she was going to fly all the way to California to see her daughter. And this is way back when I was a little boy. And I can remember her explaining to me how she was scared half to death to get on that airplane and go flying to California, quote, because if God had intended us to fly, he would have put wings on us. <laughs> in the course of our lifetimes, in the course of my generation, we have seen travel and the ability to move about on the surface of the earth increase dramatically like no other generation. It is nothing, literally, for me to travel from Oklahoma up here into Saskatchewan to come visit you for a couple of days. No problem at all. I have a card in my pocket that I can get back to the airport, and if I want to be in Israel tomorrow, I can be there. I have my passport with me and my American Express card, and I can be in Israel tomorrow afternoon. I can go anywhere I want to go in the world as soon as I want to go. 
And that is now the common thing of this world. And the idea that we might travel around and go all over the globe is no big deal whatsoever for this generation. No other generation has ever known such a thing. You know, the Japanese absolutely do not understand us over here in America and Canada. I read a book uh, not too long ago that it was trying to explain to young Japanese students what it's like here to live in the Western nations, in which that it explained to these Japanese students there are some Americans who live in as many as four different houses in their lifetime. And this was like a shock to Japanese culture. Because those people over there in previous generations, they've had multiple generations live for hundreds of years in the same house. We Americans, you know, down where I'm at, I've lived in so many different houses, I've lost count. And it is nothing for us to decide to make the decision to go from here to there to whatever. I mean, we are going to and fro. And time and distance is no longer a barrier to this generation, just as the prophecy said. It is, it's, in fact, it's so common now when you try to explain it to younger people as the way it used to be, uh, they just can't imagine it. You know, a hundred years ago, it was a trip of a lifetime to go across the continent. That was the trip of a lifetime to do so. Well, let's look at the last sign that the scripture said would be marking the last generation. It said, knowledge will increase. In 1958, I was in the fifth grade, and I got the weekly reader. I don't know if they if they have that in the school system up here for Canadian students, but down in America, they have this little newsprint thing that's been going on for years. In fact, they still have it. And the kids every week get, I think on a Thursday, they get a little thing called a weekly reader in the school system. All the kids get it. And I'll never forget this particular little weekly reader I got. And I think the reason why I won't is because God marked it in my memory indelibly so I would remember it in these days. They were announcing in 1958 that the knowledge of the world had doubled. Now, please don't ask me how they figured this out. Okay? But they were saying that all the knowledge of the world that had been from creation up to 1900 had been matched from 1900 to 1958 that somehow the volume of the knowledge of information had doubled in 1958. Well, since 1958, the knowledge of the world has doubled more than seven times. And in fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica announced two years ago the knowledge of the world is doubling every 22 months in the world that you and I live in. And that a kid who is now entering college, as a freshman in college, by the time they graduate four years from now, the knowledge of the world, the volume of the knowledge of the world will be four times greater than when they entered college. Knowledge is rapidly changing so fast, we can't even keep up. And for those of you who have the Internet, you have access to this incredible highway of information. And in fact, some are saying that this is the knowledge age. We are on the brink, according to the scientific world, to make a series of significant adjustments in what we call the world. In fact, we're on the brink of making enough adjustments. We're about ready to kill all of us. We have the knowledge to do it now. And truly, 
This generation has come to the point where we have the final fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody's been building to this generation. Those three signs are now clearly evident in this world, and no other generation to this point has ever come close to fulfilling or understanding those words. And those words precisely describe the world that you and I live in. There are many. We travel to and fro, and knowledge has increased. And it turns out that the prophecy was being very precise about a phenomena that is our world today. Now, there's a couple of uh, interesting things that uh, kind of go along with that. One of them is that there would be men of insight, men of understanding that would come forth. And it's kind of interesting how the prophecy presents them, because it's similar to how when Moses came the first time, they came bearing signs. And when Yeshua came, he came bearing signs to the people. And there are signs given in the prophecy for these men of insight and men of understanding, so that you will follow the pattern of how the children of Israel accepted Moses, of how the Hebrews accepted Yeshua the Messiah, and so that you'll be able to accept with reasonable confidence these men of insight, because let's face it, we got a whole lot of people out there telling you all manner of things about the end times. How do we know which one is true and correct? Well, if we follow the pattern, why, we would need to see them fulfill these signs, right? So the question is, well, where's the signs that talk about these men of insight, men of understanding, that will help us to understand those things? Before I specifically lay those out to you, though, I want to show you some other passages that speaks to those people and speak to our present time. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to give you a little survey of uh, chapter 40 so that you get a sense of how the prophet laid this out. Because I'm going to show you first some prophecies that have already been fulfilled so that you can see how Isaiah presents these prophecies. One of the first things that he says, Isaiah 40, beginning of verse 3, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. When was that fulfilled? That's a prophecy. Who fulfilled that? John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was out there in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance, they came and they asked him, who are you? And he finally answered and he said, I am fulfilling this prophecy. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he made reference right back here to Isaiah. Now we look a little bit further. Verse 5, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. 
When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Anybody have any sense of when that was fulfilled? Let me help you. If you'll read 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Peter says this is the ministry of the apostles. And he quotes this passage and he says, what is it that we're preaching to you? And he quotes this scripture. That's what we're doing. We're fulfilling this scripture. John the Baptist fulfilled these verses up here. The apostles came preaching and fulfilling these verses. He specifically quotes them. Now, I want to show you another passage of scripture. Verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing years. Verse 10 is a verse about the second coming. In fact, this is the way the Old Testament always refers to the second coming. The Lord God will come with might, his arm is ruling for him, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. That's classic Old Testament talking of the second coming. I can show you a whole series of verses that deal with this. That's about the second coming. So we're talking about somebody who's going to come and fulfill a message that's just before the second coming. And he's going to get himself up on a high mountain bear the good news, lift up his voice mightily, and say to Jerusalem, lift it up and say, and not be afraid, saying to the cities of Judah, behold, here's your God. It's an announcement that will be made just before the coming of the Lord. So you see the prophecy, somebody else is going to be coming. It's not the Messiah here. We're talking about people who are servants of the Messiah who are going to come and do this. They are people who bear the gospel, the good news. They're believers, just like New Testament believers. And they're going to come and they're going to preach and speak to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah and make this proclamation. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to show you a similar prophecy. Isaiah chapter 61 begins at verse 1, and you should be familiar with this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. When did you hear that fulfilled? This is the actual words of Yeshua. When Yeshua was in Israel, there was a Sabbath in which that he read from the scroll of Isaiah. He read these very words, and as soon as he finished, he rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and said to the children of Israel in the land, these words have been fulfilled within your hearing. He was saying, he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And he quoted from Isaiah where Isaiah speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah. And he says, I'm here, just as Isaiah said. 
Well, if you recall from the story, that's when they popped up and they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son, the, 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 the carpenter? And they got real huffy and real uh, bent out of shape about this. And in fact, they took him out there in Nazareth. If you've ever been to Nazareth, it's very hilly. And there's a lot of different cliffs in that area. And they took him out and they were going to throw him off of a hill. I mean, they were going to get rid of him. I mean, can you believe this son of a carpenter laying claim to that he is the Messiah and that he's here to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah? And the scripture goes on to say that he slipped through them. We're not quite sure how he did that, but he escaped them. And it is kind of a poignant way of indicating, you know, here's here's the actual prophecy. And the Messiah reads it directly and says, here, I'm fulfilling that and how the people reacted. The reason why I think it's so significant is these people were looking for the Messiah. I mean, they wanted the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah actually came and actually pinpointed the exact prophecy about the Messiah, they couldn't accept it. And we, I remember as a young man looking at that lesson and going, boy, we wouldn't make that mistake, would we? Uh, You know, I mean, if the the Messiah walked up to us and handed us a prophecy and said, well, that's me, uh, uh, you know, we we wouldn't make that mistake. We we would check it out. I mean, we would be open-minded, right? And we would pay attention. Well, brethren, you got a little bit of dilemma. Because as a generation, you're getting ready to be measured on this and see if you can learn from a lesson here. Because the prophecy says that there's some people who are going to be coming to you, a plural group, whom the prophets have also spoke of. Because if you'll look at the very next words, it goes on to describe another plural group who's coming that's fulfilling this prophecy. And it says to continue the verse in verse 2, the verb there to proclaim, they are to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, and they will be called the oaks of righteousness." the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. This is not a person, but a group of persons. And they are supposed to come declaring the day of God's vengeance. And they are to minister to God's people by granting them three things, a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, and the mantle of praise. And this prophecy here about them to come is every bit as real, written by the prophet Isaiah, as it was when he specifically spoke about the Messiah. And if you take the full logic and the structure of the passage, it says these people who are coming, they're going to be anointed by the Spirit of God to do this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to proclaim to you the day of vengeance of our God. That's the logic structure of the prophecy. The first one was singular for the Messiah. The second part is plural for them that would be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. So I've shown you that there's a couple of prophecies 
about these to come. How many of you ever heard anybody tell you that there's prophecies of people yet to come? Let me show you a really wild one. This one's really interesting. If you go back to John chapter 1, that was in the Old Testament. Let me show you something in the New Testament. Here's John the Baptist out in the wilderness, like I said. And uh, we've already talked about the fact that he gave answer to who he was and what he was doing by quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And it says that while he is out ministering, that it turns out that there was some men who were dispatched from Jerusalem, beginning at verse 19, John chapter 1. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, he's causing quite a ruckus out there in the wilderness preaching about repentance and telling all the people they need to be mikvahed and baptized to get ready for the king. So it would be natural for them to think, well, you know, is this guy claiming to be the Messiah? Because, you know, all Israel's looking for the Messiah. So almost right off the bat, you know, John's got to address that because that would be the logical first question. In fact, that's what happens here. Verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Because it would be logical for them to think maybe that's who he was representing himself to be. And then the question, the next question comes down, verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, it would be logical for them to also ask that, because Malachi the prophet says that Elijah will be coming before the coming of the Lord. In fact, in a Passover, if you observe Passover, we always set a separate cup called the Elijah's cup because we're always trying to invite Elijah to come to the Passover because if we can get Elijah to come, that will be a quicker to get the, the Messiah to come, to get the coming of the Lord. Amen. So we always, we Jews, we always set a cup for Elijah at the Passover because we're expecting him to come. And he answers and he says, I am not. Okay? So we're expecting the Messiah. He says, he confessed, no, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? We're expecting Elijah. No, I'm not Elijah. Now listen to the next question. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Prophet? Are you the prophet? What, what prophecy is that? I mean, I know the Messiah is supposed to come. I know Elijah is supposed to come. You know, isn't Elijah the prophet? I mean, isn't he a prophet? I mean, what do you mean, are you the prophet? What in the world are they expecting? In fact, if you go a little bit further in the book of John, uh, especially when you get to John chapter 7, let me begin reading at verse 37. This issue comes up again. This is in Jerusalem. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood up and cried out, saying, you heard me say this, if any man is thirsty, let him come drink, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow forth rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Verse 41. Others were saying, this is the Messiah. There's a guy called the prophet who's supposed to come, and he's different from the Messiah. Where did we get this prophecy from? 
Where in the world does that come from? Where, why are these Hebrews expecting somebody called the prophet? And who is he? Let me go back to the original prophecy. Deuteronomy and chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, and Moses has given us this prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, the average Christian seminarian says that's all one prophecy about the Messiah. It's about the Messiah who would be raised up, who would be a prophet, who would come from amongst our countrymen, and he would speak the very word of God. Remember, we didn't want to hear the voice of God. We said, let's send Moses up. Whatsoever God says to Moses, that's what we'll do. And God says, hey, that's a good plan. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to raise up a prophet from among your countrymen, and he will be like me, God. And he will speak the word of God to you instead of hearing it from the mountain. Therefore, we understood that to be that the Messiah will speak the word of God to us. But then there's another prophecy. Because God then says, verse 18, I'm going to raise up a prophet who be like you, Moses. Now, most people said, oh, well, aren't we talking about the same one? Uh-uh-uh, Torah rules here. There is no redundant word and no idle expression. If this is being repeated, it means it's something else. That's Torah rules. And he said, mentioned prophet twice, that means we're talking about something else. There's no redundant word in the Torah. Every word is a meaning in and of itself. Can I give you a teaching example that really illustrates that? Also in the book of Deuteronomy, it teaches us about judges. And in the actual Hebrew, it says, justice, justice, you shall pursue. The second word justice is not the same meaning as the first word justice. In fact, in our legal system, it is the reason why the Torah explains what is called due process. Actually, what that says is while you're pursuing justice, you must do it justly. And that's where we get the whole basis of due process. When we're seeking justice, we must have due process, and that's as important as the justice we're trying to seek. And so justice, justice is two whole separate teachings. It's the basis of due process. And so when Moses gives to us a prophet like me, and then he says a prophet like you, we're talking about two prophets. And the Hebrews know this. They're looking for a prophet that will be raised up like Moses, another Moses, who will become... Why would they be thinking that? Well, brethren, I've been telling you all day long. Israel is scattered. 
there's going to be another Exodus, a greater Exodus, and there's going to be another Moses, another Moses who will be used by God to bring the children of Israel out of the nations and back to the land. And he'll be working very closely for the Messiah and for God, and he will be teamed with someone else. Just like Moses and Aaron were teamed, the two of them, to testify to Pharaoh, this Moses and this other person is going to be teamed with to testify to the Antichrist. In fact, there are many who believe, and I tend to favor, when it talks about in Revelation 11 about the two witnesses, we're talking about the greater Moses and his compadre, which I think is probably Elijah, and they will be on the Temple Mount testifying to the nations, pronouncing the judgments upon the world, which is exactly what Moses did. He pronounced judgments upon Egypt that led to the Exodus. You see that pattern that was in the Exodus? It's getting ready to happen again. And the reason why they dispatched the people out, they wanted to know, are you the prophet who will be like Moses, who will be bringing back all the children of Israel? Because that's what they're expecting to have happen too. Only we now understand there was still yet a greater exile to take place for the house of Judah. And the house of Judah has been cast out into the nations after 70 A.D. And so we're still looking for this prophet who will come. So it turns out we've got a lot of interesting folks that the prophecy is alluding to that's supposed to be coming at the end of the ages more than just the Messiah. Men of insight, men of understanding, men who will be proclaiming the day of God's vengeance, who will be called oaks of righteousness. We're looking for this greater prophet. We're still looking for Elijah to come. It's not just the Messiah we're looking for. We got a lot of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. So let's look at some of the signs, how to identify them. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18. Revelation chapter 13 is a series of the prophecies that identifies to us the beast, whom we refer to as the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and some of the relationship between the beast and the false prophet. And in the course of that, it concludes by giving us a clue. In the last verse, it says, and I'm certain you have heard these words before, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Everybody thinks that's a prophecy about the Antichrist. Hmm. It's a prophecy to tell you how to identify one of the men of understanding. Here is wisdom. Let him who has the understanding do the calculation for you. Do you see it? Do you see the subject of the prophecy? The Antichrist is just the object of the prophecy. But the subject is about how you can be wise to identify a man of understanding, one of the men of insight, one of the men who will come proclaiming to you the day of God's vengeance. He has to be able to do this. And, and think about that for a moment. If you, if you really were going to listen to someone who's going to come and tell you when the end is coming, and to start paying close attention to it, and by the way, the, the Antichrist being in the world, that's a pretty good sign we're at the end. 
and he were to come and identify him to you and the clue to his name so you could identify who he is before he comes to power, that's a pretty good sign that that man maybe understands the prophecies that even Daniel didn't understand. And maybe you might want to listen and hear what they have to say and the explanation of the prophecies. Now, that's just one sign, but you know that I told you before Moses had three and, and Yeshua had more than three. Well, let's look at another sign. Look with me in Revelation chapter 17, beginning at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Boy, wouldn't we like to find somebody that had one of those? Especially on this subject about the end times. Somebody who had a mind of wisdom. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not and is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to his destruction. It's a riddle. It's a Hebrew riddle. It's not unlike the riddle that Daniel himself had to understand and reveal when he had to give the understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You see, that's what men of understanding can do. They can take things which appear to be a riddle to other people, and they can give understanding to them. And so the prophecy is saying that one of the things they'll be able to do is explain this riddle. It's a simple little riddle. Here's the mind which has wisdom. So if you think you have found, or you think that someone's coming and representing themselves to you as a man of understanding, a man of insight, one of these men who's to proclaim to you the day of God's vengeance, who's called of the oaks of righteousness and so forth, ask him to solve the riddle and see what his answer is. Ask him to calculate the number of a man's name that equals 666 and to solve this riddle. Now, let me take you back into actually was the first sign that was given of these three. Let me take you to Daniel chapter 8. When Daniel was receiving the visions of the end times, he got a lot of symbols and a lot of things shown. So basically it was a prophecy of four great beasts. And this fourth great beast, which was exceedingly great, really spoke of the end times. And it gets real complicated. And there are lots of scholars who try to go through Daniel and explain it in the book of Revelation and all that kind of stuff. But there's this one place in the book of Daniel that really stands out special. And it's Daniel 8 and at verse 13. And this time, instead of the vision being shown directly to Daniel, what makes this interesting is Daniel doesn't see this directly. Daniel overhears this. It's like a conversation going on between two angels, and he overhears this conversation. And that's part of the clue that's being given to it. And that's what made it unique. He hears one angel ask, from the time that the daily sacrifice is stopped, by the way, this is the sign of the abomination of desolation that starts all the great end-time events for the last generation. From the time that that happens, how long will it be, he's asking for a time measurement, until the temple is fully restored? By the way, wouldn't we like to see that? That means the Messiah is back and everything's good. And the angel gives a very interesting answer, and he says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, Daniel hears it but he still doesn't understand. 
And what follows there in Daniel chapter 8 is the Lord dispatches an angel, turns out to be Gabriel, to try to explain to Daniel what he's been hearing and understanding. And he basically goes through and gives a very precise interpretation of these different visions that he's had, except for when it comes to the vision of the evenings and mornings, and this is what he says about it. Verse 26, And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. In other words, he explained all the other stuff, but the part that he didn't explain was the vision of the evenings and mornings, explaining what the 2300 evenings and mornings was. And we know it's a precise prophecy that has to do with the last generation, and it has to do with the, the during the time of the tribulation, and it has to do with the very sign that we were told by Yeshua to pay attention to that would tell us we're at the end. It's a very precise prophecy. It's called the vision of the evenings and mornings. And he says it's concealed up and sealed up till the end. So when I showed you Daniel chapter 12 and the Lord said conceal and seal up the book, what he was specifically told to seal and conceal up was the vision of the evenings and mornings. And he said men of insight would understand. So we're looking for certain men who will come at the end of the age who've been spoken of by the prophets who are being anticipated even in the New Testament, that they have something to do at the end of the age in which that they have insight to explain to you the vision of the evenings and mornings. They can demonstrate their understanding by calculating the number of the beast, and they can prove that they have wisdom by solving that riddle. And if you could find a person or persons who could do that, you should sit up and take note. Because that in of itself is one of the signs that you're at the end of the ages. Because those guys were prophesied to come at the end. And that would be putting you in the position just like the children of Israel when they heard Moses coming the first time to say, it's time to leave Egypt. And that would put you just like the Messiah in the days of the Messiah when he came and said, the redemption has now come to you.